Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show at LifeSiteNews.com. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today I'm going to be talking to my friend Andrew Lawden of True North, a podcaster, a columnist, a well-known Canadian media figure on the state of freedom in Canada. Andrew Lawton is, is a well-known libertarian, and he's been very outspoken on the vaccine mandates, on what is going on with Quebec placing attacks on the unvaccinated, at all these layers of bureaucracy and red tape that are slowly but surely suffocating the civil liberties that Canadians have enjoyed for generations. Now, regardless of your position on various matters relating to vaccination and relating to the pandemic, it is also quite obvious that the government response to it has taken a life of its own. It's very, very obvious that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is intent on demonizing those who disagree with them, referring to them as racist and misogynist, as if that had anything to do uh, with vaccination. It's very clear that people feel trapped in a cycle of lockdowns and a cycle of stunted government responses that relies on restricting the movement of Canadians rather than on expanding the healthcare system. And so just to discuss all of these different issues and kind of get a sense of where Canada is at and where we might be headed in the next couple of years, Andrew joins me to run through all of these things. This is that conversation. All right, Andrew, just to start off, the last time we talked was after the election and uh, regular listeners will remember that as being a somewhat depressing conversation. Where are we now in January with with vaccine mandates? We've got supply chain issues with with truckers being required to be vaccinated to cross the border. Estimates in the in the in the sun say eighteen thousand truckers probably won't be able to cross the border, which obviously is going to cause huge problems. You have Quebec insisting on a tax for for unvaccinated people. And you're a libertarian, which means that these are the sorts of issues that concern you first and foremost. Where do you think we're at in Canada when it comes to our freedoms? And what sort of danger do you think that we're in heading into 2022? It's been immensely dangerous. And you and I talked about this on my show not that long ago, the convergence that a lot of these measures have forged between libertarians and social conservatives and and those who have been on kind of some plane in the middle of those two things. And the big challenge here is that not only do we have governments ramping up efforts towards things that would have been unconscionable to people two years ago, like mandating vaccination or, or, or as Quebec calls it, you know, demanding a health contribution from the unvaccinated. But the biggest uh, travesty of all of this has been how little opposition there has been. You know, you and I are are both of the mindset that you've got to elect a good, strong, solid people, and you get them to positions of leadership. But we've seen whether it's a conservative premier, a liberal premier, an NDP premier, a, a coalition d'Avenir Quebec leader, uh, pretty much identical measures when all is said and done. You know, there certainly were different timelines. Jason Kenney and, and Scott Moe were the latest to put in the vaccine passport, but ultimately everyone has gone to the same place. With the exception of, of Quebec, which tends to have, which tends to have gone further than, than anyone else has, but at the federal level as well, you have had no resistance, no opposition to the most dangerous things coming out from Justin Trudeau. So we we not only have some of the most aggressive things we've ever seen from government against civil liberties in the last generation, but also very little to no opposition to it. So I have a whole bunch of of questions that I want to I, I want to ask you because I've wanted your take on a few of these things for a while, but. The million dollar question that everybody's asking is, 
Why is there no difference or little to no difference between what conservative premiers and and liberal or left wing premiers are doing? Why, like, do the people like Kenny just feel backed into a corner? Like, these are the kind of questions that everybody's asking, because I think a lot of people are disillusioned with the system because it doesn't feel like who they vote for does any good. And and also they want to feel as if, you know, fighting for one party or one leader or even, you know, an independent politician is actually going to make some impact. But in Canada, if you're concerned about civil liberties, you don't really have a political voice at the moment. No, and certainly in the last federal election, we saw that Maxime Bernier and the People's Party had become the only real outlet for those people. And and ultimately, we saw, of course, a huge surge of support for the PPC. But at the end of the day, that amounted to precisely zero seats, which is where they were before. Now, whether they build on that in subsequent elections is, is an academic point. The here and now is that in the political class in Canada that holds elected office, we don't have any opposition. And a lot of this, I, I fear, comes down to that uh, apocryphal quote from, from Ledru Roland of, there go my people, I must follow them for that, for I am their leader. And, and the, the reality is you have, I, I think, a populace in Canada that isn't really looking at the bigger picture here. A lot of people that, you know, that top line, we need to protect people, protect the integrity of the healthcare system, flatten the curve. They agree with that. They buy into that. So they have trusted that the government's preferred remedy to that problem is the only option. And even people that are, are not happy about things will kind of say, well, well, what else, what else are we going to do? What, what else are, are we going to do to you know, achieve that outcome? So I think the big problem is that you've got politicians that by and large are, are seeing that the fire-breathing libertarian types are a minority or have traditionally in the pandemic been a minority. I think that is changing. I think the last two months in particular have made a lot of libertarians of people on on the COVID file, but that's neither here nor there. The reality is a lot of people in Canada are very pro-lockdown, so the incentive for politicians to stake, take a stand hasn't been there. I understand the, 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 the incentive, and it's one of the things I, I pointed out early on, is that unfortunately, those who were you know consistently locking down and implementing these restrictions had a democratic mandate to do so, even if it was an undemocratic thing to do. But one of the things that genuinely confuses me, and I'd love your take on, is the extent to which the politicians just seem to think that they can do this indefinitely and everything will work out, right? Like it doesn't take an economist, and I, I emphatically am not one, it doesn't even take somebody who's good at math, which I'm not particularly good at either, to see that you can only punch businesses down so often before they fail, and that each business is run by people and employs people, and that we're already facing inflation at 4.8%. Right. So economic pain is here and is definitely on the way. And just how how long can this last before the economic damage is so sustained that that a course correction isn't going to make much of a difference? I mean, I I don't have the crystal ball, so to speak, to give you the precise timeline, but I, I know that it's not indefinitely. I know that it's not forever. And already, I mean, restaurants I've seen that I just know anecdotally because I've gone there because I I like them that survived the first lockdown didn't make it through the second. Maybe they survived the second and others didn't make it through the third and and so on. And a a restaurant not far from me that I I went to not that long ago has in the latest lockdown basically shut down. They're not even doing the takeout and delivery thing and they're just going to figure out if they have a future later on. So there is a huge, huge problem here 
in that uh, businesses who have had nothing to do with the spread of COVID are being shut down because politicians have decided that people just shouldn't be leaving their homes. And, and that's been the big lie of the vaccine passport. The vaccine passport was supposed to ensure that all of these particular places in society, like airplanes, trains, restaurants, movie theaters, concert venues, they were all going to be safe because they had only vaccinated people there. That was the reason the governments justified the very, very restrictive and and very draconian measure of of barring the unvaccinated from these places to make them safe. And then all of a sudden, in in an Ontario context, in Quebec, in I think British Columbia as well, although I'm I'm not as familiar with their rules specifically, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, the government says, okay, these places just vaccinated, unvaccinated, doesn't matter. We've got to shut them down. Most people would look at that and say, okay, well, this is evidence that the vaccine passports weren't working. But there isn't that contrition. There isn't that uh, humility from governments. Instead, it's just throwing everything out and seeing what sticks. Now, here's what gets me once again is I understand that, you know, the BC NDP wants this policy in place. I understand that the Quebecois do whatever they want, right? At the same time, when I'm looking at a Doug Ford and a Jason Kenney, people who are genuinely reluctant to bring it in, you know, Ford, Ford isn't, Ford is more of a populist, if that word means anything, than a conservative. You know, he joked when they asked him what religion he was during the campaign, what religion do I have to be? Right. But he's never he's always has been exactly who he is and has never pretended to be something else. It's one of the reasons people liked him. And I I took him at his word when he said he didn't want to do this. And then, you know, promised on January 17, which by my watch is a couple of days ago, that they were going to lift the vaccine passport. Kenny implemented it, even though he didn't want to and said explicitly that he wouldn't. And now he hasn't lifted it either. So I understand that people who are A, committed to this regardless of the facts on the ground, but B, actually want this in place because they vindictively want to punish those who aren't following their preferred off-ramp. But I don't understand why why conservative premiers who expressed reluctance to do this in the first place aren't taking the opportunity to basically say what you just said. Yeah, and, and it's been interesting that even since then, the Alberta and Saskatchewan governments have tried to distinguish themselves from the PAC. Scott Moe, who's the, the premier of Saskatchewan in particular, ha- has said a lot in this latest wave that he sees no benefit to lockdowns because all these places that have lockdowns are still, in fact, worse than Saskatchewan is right now as, as far as cases and, and hospitalizations go. And, and even Jason Kenney as well has basically said he's he's not going to impose a, another lockdown. He's not going to go the Quebec route. Now, a lot of people who, like you noted, heard him say he was never going to do a vaccine passport in the fir- first place, I think have reason to be skeptical of this. But, but even then, there does seem to be a a bit of a reckoning by by some of these people that okay maybe we we shouldn't be even entertaining going down that road again let's pick up where we left off in our previous conversation on this podcast and actually on yours and talk about conservative leader and the word leader is doing a lot of heavy lifting there aaron o'toole because because it's it's really been interesting to watch him not respond to any of this like it's like he doesn't understand a good a good issue to lead on when he sees it because what you've been seeing consistently across the board is one of his MPs come out before him on an important issue 
and basically implicitly call him out by staking a firm stand. And then he sort of straggles along a couple of later uh, days later and, and does it right. So you've got people asking, what do you think of Quebec's, you know, tax on the unvaccinated? And Pierre Poliver is the one who comes out and says, I'm very much against it. And people are like, okay, O'Toole, all right, Bueller, Bueller, like, what do you think? And then finally, he also releases a pretty tepid statement, but at least it was a statement saying he opposes it. You've got Garnet Jenis, who actually endorsed Aaron O'Toole during the leadership race, uh, call him out for for not backing the, the Canada-China committee, and then O'Toole pretending that had been his plan all along. And But you see this over and over and over again. You see this like with MPs coming out and leading on various issues because they're basically sick of waiting for, for the leader himself to take a position on these. He's presumably watching the polls. Oh, I don't know. That's got to be the only thing that I can think of that he's doing because he basically has stated explicitly that, you know, his position is identical to Trudeau's on most issues, including Quebec's anti-religious freedom bill 21. So what, what kind of marks do you give O'Toole so far? And would you agree that he's losing a real opportunity here? Because as, as those who want to punish the unvaccinated get more strident and get more obviously, more obviously vindictive, he has a real opportunity here to take what I, what looks to me like a really low risk stand that will win him a lot of support. Yeah. And I think certainly when I mentioned earlier, part, partly in jest that the pandemic's last uh, couple of weeks has made more libertarians. I, I think the big line in the sand for a lot of people was kicking kids out of school again for another two weeks. A lot of parents who are, you know, double vaccinated, triple vaccinated, they've done the lockdowns, they've worn the masks, they've done all of these things are, are saying, okay, I've had enough about this. So I I do think things are turning. And that is perhaps why it is only in the last few weeks that Aaron O'Toole has taken a stand against lockdowns. One point that I, I took aim at O'Toole over months ago, this would have been back in August, when Justin Trudeau called the federal election, the position that Aaron O'Toole took and, and the official conservative position was that it's reckless and dangerous to have a, a pandemic election. And I, I said, number one, you're saying that in this uh, very, very pivotal time for the country, you think that the status quo is suiting Canadians just fine and Justin Trudeau can continue to run the show. But number two, you're feeding into the very very narrative that's fueling lockdowns, that we are in a world that is too dangerous for us to live our lives. And and now O'Toole's doing the opposite of that, because now that lockdowns are no longer on Vogue, he's saying, okay, I'm going to be the anti-lockdown guy. But but he wasn't even, if you listen closely to that press conference where he he came out as an anti-lockdown person, he he wasn't even really doing it. He he said that Justin Trudeau has normalized lockdowns because Justin Trudeau has failed in all of these ways. It's made it so lockdowns are really the only option. So he's not actually saying to any of the premiers who have imposed these, hey, you shouldn't do it. Hey, if I were prime minister, I would be urging you to stay open and offering you X, Y, Z to make sure you didn't. So, So even when he's trying to take that stand, he's not really doing it. That's a very good point. I thought, too, the don't normalize lockdowns thing was a pretty tepid response to what was actually going on. And he always seems to be, you know, quite far behind the curve. So people were discussing mandatory vaccination based on a handful of European countries doing it and then Quebec doing it just as O'Toole came around to the idea that maybe locking down forever wasn't the greatest idea. So he was there just in time to be too late. People had already moved on to the next thing. But I do want to kind of discuss one thing that that made me 
uh, optimistic as a really uh, really big stretch, but at least a little a little bit hopeful in the Canadian context was I was watching to see what the 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 general reaction to mandatory vaccination would be very very closely because you've got a lot of people especially, you know, like in the GTA, people who are very, very fearful and are very, very angry at people who didn't get vaccinated because, you know, because they're scared and they're reacting out of fear. And so I was quite worried that considering how many people supported lockdowns, that plenty of people would be okay with mandatory vaccination as well, just for vindictive reasons. But while the second person to come out and announce they wouldn't do mandatory vaccination was BC. And BC's NDP government is crazy, right? They kept churches almost completely shut down. For a very long time, you know, BC's Bonnie Henry actually asked uh, the courts for permission to to detain people who were on their way to church, people who were going to attend a religious service. And they came out right away and said, no, we're not going to do mandatory vaccination. And that gave me a little bit of optimism that mandatory vaccination was going to be a Quebec only thing, just because if anybody was going to do it, at least in my view, and I'd like to hear yours, BC was going to be the one to follow suit. What is your take on all of that? Are you kind of optimistic that that Quebec put up this trial balloon and the rest of the country kind of revealed how far they were willing to go? I think so. I mean, remember, it wasn't just Quebec that put it forward. A couple of days before Quebec announced it's fine, it was Johnny Duclos, the federal health minister, who had said that, you know, his conversations led him to believe that mandatory vaccinations were inevitable, but it would have to be provinces running this policy. Now, I actually was in Austria in November. I was in Vienna for a a few days just on holiday, and, and this was when Austria was still open. About a week or two weeks later, it would go into lockdown and and later impose one of the strictest, actually the strictest vaccine mandate in the world. I think it's like 7,000 euros in Austria as of next month if you're not vaccinated. And it's only Austria and Turkmenistan that at the time had had done that, which I joked was not generally like the pairing of of countries whose company you want to keep. But the, the thing about it is that there are a lot more insidious mandates that we've seen elsewhere. And you alluded to them in in Europe as well. You had in, I think, Greece and the Czech Republic and Italy, these things where if you're over 60 or 65, you have to get vaccinated. And if you don't, you have to pay 100 euros a month. And, And that's so small that it doesn't anger people as much as the Austria example does, which is why I think the Austria example is more from a a political tactics perspective effective because it it gives people a a bigger enemy. Quebec is doing something very sneaky as well. They're saying, well, it's not not a fine. You technically have a choice. You you just have to pay if you make the wrong choice or the choice with which the state doesn't approve. But but even then, you are right that people seem to feel unsettled by it. And, And one of the big interesting things about libertarians is that you have two types of libertarians. There's the like pickup truck, gun-toting, libertarian, redneck types. And then there's also the soy latte, kale, vegan libertarian types. The, I just live naturally, leave me alone, let me do my own thing. And and BC, I think, has a lot of people in in that second group who are, are very, very distinct from the folks you might see in Alberta and Saskatchewan who oppose vaccine mandates, but are just as fervent about it for their own reasons. Our mutual friend J.J. McCullough wrote an interesting column in the Washington Post earlier this month that you might have seen where he pointed out that freedoms in Canada, including freedom of speech, could vanish remarkably quickly. And he wasn't even relating it to the current the current vaccine restrictions, but he just pointed out that especially in a country, because we're multicultural, we're also divided and we all vote on, on a different set of interests. And there's very few things that unite different ethnic communities in many cases. 
And this has kind of allowed a, a lot of our politicians to to play divide and conquer, which is why a lot of our elections are basically contests between, you know, leaders putting forward hundreds of tiny little micro issues that they hope will get this constituency or that. What is your analysis as a as a libertarian and and longtime media watcher looking at the condition of freedom of can- in Canada? What is your best case scenario for the next couple of years and your worst case scenario? Because of course we've got a lot of people who are who are assuming both and i think that there are people with vested interest in predicting the worst possible outcome and then there are people with a vested interest in in predicting the best possible outcome so as somebody who's been tracking this carefully and commenting on it yourself where would you put us what's your kind of analysis you know i know you don't have a crystal ball but you also have the predictive powers of somebody who's been watching this very closely I'll put an observation that, that's more analytical first and then diagnose from there, because I, I, one of the challenges that I've observed is that there's a, a, first principles, a first principles problem with freedom in Canada, which is that, you know, 10, 12 years ago on free speech, let's just use that uh, as one example here. If some policy were to come out that were at odds with free speech, you could reason people relying on the first principle, the free speech is good, ergo threats to it are wrong. Now you can't do that. In a lot of contexts, if you were engaged in political debate and you say, well, this is wrong because it infringes on free speech, they would not necessarily agree that that is in and of itself something that you can accept at face value, that free speech is worth protecting. And you always, in the interest of having discourse and dialogue, have to come back to the question of what can we agree on? What is our very foundational point that we can agree on? If we can't agree that the sky is blue, we can't agree that anything else is blue if we're comparing it to the sky, that that sort of thing. So we're now at the point as, as people, and I include broadly the right here, conservatives, social conservatives, libertarians, we're, we're all advocating for, for some form of, of liberty here. We are are at the point where we need to sell people on the value of the very fundamental thing that used to be accepted by a lot more people. And on free speech in particular, that's very, very dangerous. We see governments going after a so-called hate speech, which, again, on the surface, sounds like this great thing to do. We don't want hate. We don't want hateful things being said. But but when you start talking about government intervention in it, it changes dramatically. The uh, conversion therapy ban, which you and I spoke about on my show, again, a very similar thing. We're, we're talking about something that prosecutes in some form conversations, which should be, and I'd say need to be in a free society, upheld. So in that sense, I, I think the worst case scenario is that any of these encroachments that we see from governments are, are quite easy to enact because we have a population that doesn't quite value or respect the fundamental freedoms that are under attack, or or even worse, the government proscriptions are unnecessary because the culture has already moved in that direction anyway. So that's the dismal dismal worst case scenario. The best case scenario in in a sort of twisted way is that when things get so bad, people push back. It's only, you know, if you're talking about a bungee cord, for example, the bungee cord is only going to spring as hard and as fast as it can if you just pull it just so far that the tension is so strong, it can't do anything but snap. It can't do anything but release. 
And, and that's exactly, I think, what we're seeing on some of the pandemic things. We have people who have reached their breaking points for whatever reason. Maybe it was their restaurant being shut down again, their job being declared non-essential again, their kids being kicked out of school again, whatever it is. And if we see some of these restrictions that I was talking about from the liberals, maybe that will push people as well. So I, I think the best case scenario has to be people realizing how bad it is. It's going to get bad no matter what. But where I hold out hope is that people will realize how bad it is and, and start to push back. Do you think the Trudeau minister talked about mandatory vaccination because he kind of blurted it out in a moment, like it was a Freudian slip? Or do you think that this was actually a trial balloon with Justin Trudeau kind of testing the waters to see what the reaction would be to the, the next step of restrictions or the next step of government coercion? I don't think you say, well, there are two, there are two issues here. I don't think you say something that significant and float a policy that significant unless you're doing it very deliberately. You're, you're floating a trial balloon either for yourself or, or for the prime minister. It's something that, that you are, are desperately trying to get out there, but you want to do it in a way where you, you have a little bit of room if you need to backpedal. The alternative there, the alternate or alternative idea that I have is that it isn't actually a big deal to him and to them. That's the thing, because in my mind, I'm like, well, if you're talking about mandatory vaccination, that's so big, you wouldn't freelance on that. But alternatively, if to him, that's not a big deal. It's not something that you need to necessarily think that hard about. But I, I think either one is bad. But I, I don't think you would say something like that without knowing exactly what you were doing. Now, when you're looking at the media in Canada, and you've been a media critic uh, for a long time, you've run your own radio show, now you host your own podcast with True North, and you've written for all kinds of different publications. The interesting thing about the Canadian media has always been how homogenous it is. Besides Conrad Black's National Post, there isn't really anybody in the country that is saying anything particularly interesting. They all say, if you read one, there's 10 columnists, unless it's Rex Murphy, who trends on Twitter every time he opens his mouth because he's the only one with an independent mind. You're, you pretty much can just read one column as a stand-in for all of them because they're all saying more or less the same thing. And the, the when they differ, it's a distinction without a difference. Now, the National Post came out with a with an editorial position against mandatory vaccination. And and it was kind of tepidly worded, but I thought it was an encouraging sign. What has been your take on the media reaction all the way through? Do you think they've been pumping out a lot of fear porn about COVID because they rely on clicks, even though they shouldn't, because most of these places got a government bailout and their money is guaranteed anyways? Do you think that they are tending towards the government line because so many of them now receive government money? Or do you just think that because... Uh, journalists are are generally speaking part of an elite club that with the exception of a handful of guys like like Anthony Fury, they really just do think this way and their views, the, the, the views they're expressing are their views after all, right? A lockdown doesn't hurt them. They can write their columns from their basement. I think it depends. I think there's a lot of all of those elements in this. I, I do think that oftentimes you, you have people that end up in newsrooms who have gone to liberal arts schools in big cities who themselves are from that city. Maybe they have parents who are in media. So they, they have had a life that, that is not as connected to a lot of the people whose perspectives I, I think are being lost here. I mean, one of the big examples is the unvaccinated. There tends to be this view that the unvaccinated people are these 
I mean, to use Justin Trudeau's language in that interview in September, just racist, misogynist type somehow. I mean, I don't know how not being vaccinated connects with racism or misogyny, but in Trudeau's eyes, it does. And beyond that, just these sort of knuckle-dragging, Neanderthalish, anti-science troglodytes, uh, despite the fact, and I, I made this point in a, in a column recently to kind of use the left's tactics against them, the left talks about diversity being our strength. If you look at the racial breakdown of vaccine aversion and vaccine hesitancy, Black Canadians are the lowest demographic as far as likelihood to get a COVID-19 vaccination. Indigenous, Latino, they are both below the national average as well, well below the Caucasian number. So here you have three ethnic identities, uh, two of which the Liberals talk a great deal about standing up for, Black Canadians and Indigenous Canadians, who are averse to getting vaccinated and are now, if they're in Quebec, facing a fine if they don't, and and so on and so forth. So I I think that's a, a great example of this problem at foot here. There's no compassion, there's no nuance, there's no interest in understanding these people. And and to go back to your question about the media, if you've never encountered someone in your life who is against the vaccine, how on earth can you understand them? How on earth can you even endeavor to understand the, the, the array of reasons why people are not vaccinated? And again, I say this as someone who is fully vaccinated because I made a choice to do it, just as I respect everyone else's right to make whatever choice they feel is right for them. But I I do think there's an echo chamber problem in Canadian media. And and I saw this just to to deviate slightly on the firearms issue. I'm a gun owner. Last year, I, I did a documentary about firearms in Canada. And one of the big challenges is you have firearms policy being covered by reporters who have never seen a firearm in their lives. And I don't blame them for that, but it's an example of how your experiences and your outlook, which cannot help but to seep into your coverage, are shaped by your life and your upbringing. And if you've never been exposed to things in the world, it's very difficult to write about them with a critical eye. No, that's a great point because they haven't been like they've just been throwing out these bizarre slurs like the racism and misogyny thing was really rich from, you know, the Kokanee groper with, who had a blackface habit till he was 30. But beyond the irony of Justin Trudeau making those accusations, they were just they were not rooted in any real reality. Like it was so detached from from any part of the actual discussion. Right. There's people who have concerns about side effects. There are people who have concerns about pharma companies like they're a very long list of concerns, some of which I think are reasonable some of which I don't, but it doesn't really matter because I think that, that binding anybody's conscience on this issue is grotesque. But the, like, the, the idea that racism and misogyny would have anything to do with it was so strange to me. And it leads me to another missed opportunity that I think that the conservatives should, should, be, should be speaking about um, a long time ago. And I, we've discussed this before personally, but I kind of wanted to get your, your take on it as well. When you have Justin Trudeau uh, talking about Canadian values, what he's actually referring to, if you look at the polling data, is, is the values of, of post-Christian Canadians of European consent. If you look at, for example, what new Canadians and immigrant Canadians from more traditional cultures, so non-white Canadians actually think about things like same-sex marriage, for example, decent majorities are still opposed to it. If you look at what most people in the non-white community think about and every social issue from abortion to gender identity, their views are very close to mine and miles away uh, from Justin Trudeau's. So you also made this point about vaccine hesitancy. There's a lot of people in these communities who, because they distrust the government, because they don't trust the authorities that are telling them it's safe, for a wide number of reasons, have decided that they don't want to take this. And Justin Trudeau's response is, is just to demonize them 
And what I think conservative, the conservative leadership should have been doing for years already is when he decides to say conservatives who believe X, Y, Z are un-Canadian would be to say, well, Mr. Trudeau, are you saying, you know, that Syrian refugees are un-Canadian? Are you saying, you know, indigenous people are un-Canadian? Like to actually take the offensive and point out that Justin Trudeau's hyper-progressive views on social issues and his very vindictive views on vaccine hesitancy are actually the purview of sort of the postmodern, largely white elites, rather than reflecting the diversity that he says is our strength. And I think that there's another dimension of that, too, because I am a firm believer of pointing out hypocrisy and and pointing out just the logical inconsistencies in in some of these things, if the left actually cares about the things that they tend to say they do. And I think we know the answer is that oftentimes they don't. It just serves uh, very convenient ends for them. Another has been the economic inequity. Now, this is obviously the huge issue for the left, for the NDP and the liberals. And, And the interesting thing about lockdowns And also the vaccine fine in Quebec is that they only affect a certain segment of the population. They only affect the wealthy, the people that can, with their white collar jobs, work from home and actually come out ahead because they don't have to pay for parking, gas. They don't have to commute downtown. And who is it that's still working? The people that are delivering food for the wealthy, the people that are delivering other goods. When the border was shut down, people who could afford it could still fly into the U.S. or go elsewhere. Even with the border reopened, it's the wealthy that can afford the PCR test. If you're in Quebec and you're unvaccinated and you have to pay the fine, well, who is it that will have no choice but to get vaccinated because they can't afford the fine? The poor. And again, all of these issues, which in any other context would be having, you know, Occupy Wall Street reassembled, people on the left would be rioting, protesting in the streets, demanding that these policies be eroded because of the inequality and inequity they're causing. On vaccination, no one seems to care anymore. That's a great, that's a great additional point. And just to kind of of close this off, because I really just wanted to have a discussion about what's going on here in Canada, because we have, we have a lot of Canadian listeners, but I also think that Canada is an interesting country and that we, we have virtually no political opposition. And most of the things that we've seen happen, as you pointed out earlier on in this conversation, have been implemented by, by premiers of supposedly every ideological stripe. And so the final question I kind of wanted to ask is, is what are people supposed to do? Like I had, uh, I had an Austrian pro-life activist kind of give me her analysis of what's going on over there earlier this month. And she just said, look, there's like massive protests, some of them riots in Vienna every weekend. And I just don't think that it's going to make a difference. I think that they're willing to kind of crash the prison system just to be vindictive on this issue. Now, in Canada, we don't really, we have the PPC that was very much against this. As you pointed out, they don't have any seats. And so I appreciate what Maxime Bernier uh, is doing. I appreciate what he's been saying. But at the same time, he, he's a voice. He is not, however, a politician who actually has the ability to change the course um, of the discussion in, in the halls of power. So what are Canadians who are increasingly fed up and frustrated with everything they see to do if, you know, voting for voting for a conservative or voting for a liberal doesn't make a whole lot of difference in most ridings? Um, not at this point anyways, and not not until the leadership of, uh, of the party changes, at least that's my view. Um, and we don't really have the infrastructure or a conservative movement proper to combat these sorts of things. So besides relying on enough people finally getting fed up, is there anything that people actually can do that you would consider to be productive? You know, that's actually a really 
really good question that I, I wish I had more time to contemplate, but I'll, I'll try to just roll with whatever comes to mind immediately here, because I, I do agree that politically it's challenging. And, and this is one of the age old questions. I mean, this is something that going back, I know you're a student of, of philosophy and history. You, you are very familiar with the William Buckley rule, which I, I think has has answered a question that a lot of conservatives have. Do you go with, you know, ideological purity or do you go with electability or do you do as Buckley did and try to find somewhere in the middle? His rule was vote for the most electable, most conservative, for the most conservative, most electable person you you can. But even then you're forced to question, do I do I prioritize more the electability or the 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 ideological purity? And and for a lot of people in the last federal election, I, I think that was a big challenge. They may have been in a riding where they had a, a candidate that was great. And even if they didn't love Aaron O'Toole, they were happy voting conservative. And there may have been candidates that the inverse was true, where they, they didn't have a, a local or a, voters where they didn't have a local candidate they liked. And it was easier for them to justify voting on, on principle. I, I do think that it, it depends on how pessimistic you are just on the voting aspect. Because if you think that Aaron O'Toole is going to do nothing and things are going to be really bad in Canada, and you think it's going to be like that anyway, it's easier to justify voting for someone that you don't think is going to win because you want to make a point. And and I do think PPC voters made a point in September. Now, whether or not that point has been received by the conservative establishment in Aaron O'Toole is another issue entirely. But I think PPC voters, by showing up in as many numbers as they did, did in fact make a point. So that's the answer on the political side of it. The To the to answer the question of what can you do on the here and now, I, I do think, and I, I've never actually said this before, but I do think non-compliance has to become a lot more of an option for people. And again, you, you have to know what you're getting into. If you're going to stand up and defy some lockdown order, you have to be prepared to be fined. You have to be prepared to uh, receive whatever notice the bureaucracy is going to throw at you. But at a certain point, I'm encouraged when Ontario gave police departments the authority to stop and question people about why they were out of their homes. And every single police department in Ontario said within a matter of 48 hours, we're not going to do that. There was enough backlash that the policy changed because the police departments were saying, we are not going to uphold that. We're not going to go down that road. So when people take a stand and they do it in a clear and direct way, change can happen. That's a good point. I had totally forgotten about the the police department's incident, but it's true. Yeah, that was like 19 civil liberties violations ago. It's easy to lose count. It was, but you are right that it that it kind of did show that there was a limit to to the authority that that police officers would would accept because they were basically told, "Here you have these powers." And all the chiefs were like, "No, thank you." And Doug Ford ended up looking pretty stupid. So that was that was an encouraging moment. Final final question just to to wrap this up, Andrew, where can my listeners find your show, your columns, your work. They can always go to subscribe to the podcast at andrewlawtonshow.com, andrewlawtonshow.com. And I also launched uh, just a couple of months ago a new Substack, which I would love for you all to join me at. That is at andrewlawton.substack.com. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us again. Hey, always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Andrew Lawton on civil liberties in Canada. Thanks so much for joining us this week. If you want to subscribe to the podcast or check out past shows, please do head over to lifesightnews.com. Click on the podcast tab. You can subscribe there and get our podcast wherever you get your content. Again, thanks so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week.